0: Welcome to the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast, brought to you by the students of the University of Minnesota Medical School. I'm your host, David Wu, and today I will be interviewing Jack Moore of Cuventus, a startup based out of Mountain View, California. Jack is a product manager in charge of inpatient product, and in this episode, we go into depth about how him and his team are using machine learning to improve the efficiency of hospitals, such as the University of Minnesota's very own M Health system. We go into depth about Qventus and how they build and deploy models to improve patient care and reduce ICU bed wait times. And at the end, we spend time talking about bias in race and race in medicine and how we can use AI to combat the propagation of such biases. I had a lot of fun doing this interview and I learned a lot and I feel much more galvanized moving forwards. I hope you all enjoy. Thanks. So my guest today is Jack Moore of Qventus. Um, Jack, I was hoping if you could tell us a bit about your path and how you eventually got involved in healthcare AI and Qventus.
1: Yeah, uh, when, I, when I graduated from school, I, I had a really big interest in machine learning. Um, I started off at Pacific Gas and Electric building artificial intelligence to help, uh, to help operators make intelligent switching decisions. So figuring out how to configure the grid to quickly restore power to as many people as possible and uh, things like that. A bunch of really interesting challenges. I've spent the last few years bouncing around a couple of different industries working on uh, working on artificial intelligence and machine learning products uh, as a product manager, um, including I made a jump over to real estate tech and then to healthcare. Um, ultimately, my jump to Juventus was largely one of uh, trying to find a place that had a, a combination of a really strong mission and and really challenging problems, and healthcare is certainly one of the more one of the more complex set of of problems, uh, and certainly you know problems worth solving. And so that's kind of that's been what's what's led me to yeah to Qventus, and it's been a really exciting really exciting path.
0: Mm, I feel like uh, yeah, so Qventus is based in SF, California, right? Right. I feel like the uh, the PG and E that's like a cool tie-in because you know this past summer we've had a lot of fires.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's been crazy, and it's funny because it's funny because I've had a little bit of exposure to to some of that, uh, some of the AI and, and ML that's involved with that as well. I mean, it's it's fascinating, kind of how many places uh, machine learning and AI tech kind of plugs in to our world. I mean, when I was at PG and E, we were evaluating technologies to. Uh, to kind of intelligently, to uh, intelligently interpret lidar readings to identify places, uh, places along power lines that needed to be kind of cleared of trees. Um, part of the whole issue that California dealt with with these wildfires, at least the ones that have been attributed to PG&E, uh, uh, more than one of them have been due to uh, to trees falling on power lines and causing sparks, which triggered fires. And uh, it's fascinating when. It's fascinating the parallel here because there's so much grid, there's so much power mm. line infrastructure, and not enough resources to maintain it all. And so you need to have intelligence in place to identify where to best allocate your resources. And that sort of limited resources prioritization problem is something that comes up all the time in in hospital operations as well. Just kind of where Cventus is focused. So it's yeah, it's it's a really kind of it's a fascinating parallel that you see all over the place. I mean, even in uh, in real estate tech, we were helping. Real estate agents prioritize which clients would would ultimately, uh, you know, yield the kind of healthiest returns for their businesses. It wasn't a problem that I ultimately felt incredibly engaged with, but it was challenging. It was really, really challenging and really interesting. Um, and that question of how do you optimally allocate people's resources is a, you know, is a, a really fascinating problem.
0: I think that's a perfect segue to uh, my next question. Is you know, in your words, what does Cubantis do and? In- you know, you're talking a little. You're hinting a little bit about this, but I was wondering if you could tell us more.
1: Yeah. So, uh, Cuventus is all about uh, is all about making hospital operations more efficient. We're all about making healthcare more efficient for everybody. Um, in my role at qventus I am the product manager in charge of our inpatient product, and so we focus on the inpatient product. Uh, we focus mainly on ways that we can optimize hospital operations to reduce length of stay. Uh, reduce excess days, and, you know, kind of achieve other efficiencies that are inherent, uh, that are inherent in, you know, those sorts of, uh, the sorts of benefits for the hospital. Um, And we do that, uh, we do that with a strong, with a strong focus on machine learning and and seeing where you can automate decision-making to help people operate at the top of their license.
0: Mm. I guess, uh, can you like, like, go a little deeper? And I'm I'm curious, like, how, uh, how does machine learning, you know, help us, um, automate or, you know, in like a finite, you know, we, there's like a finite amount of time and money that hospital, yeah. you know, I guess, manpower that hospitals have, like, how do you guys use machine learning to optimize that?
1: You know, if you, if you think about, uh, we, we sometimes try to simplify the hospital down to, uh, to make it somewhat mechanistic where you think about it as, a bunch of different, bunch of different moving pieces that are all trying to mesh together for some optimal, uh, for some optimal outcome. Um, not all of those pieces operate as efficiently as possible. So, for example, uh, for example, in a lot of places, in uh, an MRI, an MRI department might operate primarily on a kind of first-in, first-out basis. The orders they receive first are the ones that they that tend to get resolved first. When in reality, that that might correlate somewhat with the order in which those uh, the the uh, the sequence in which those orders should be completed in order to optimally flow patient through the hospital to get the right people discharged at the right time. Um, but there are better ways there are better ways to 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 sequence those events if you really wanted to optimize for patient throughput. Um, and ultimately, when we think about patient throughput, we think about getting the right things done at the right times in order to get patients out as soon as possible. So if you think about if you think about two patients, one of which, uh, or both of which have MRI orders against them, um, but one of which is you know, waiting on a blood culture, for example. And so it's going to be a, a day or two before they can discharge, regardless of whether the MRI gets done today or tomorrow. Um, and then another patient where the MRI might be the only thing keeping them from discharging. The identifying that patient where that MRI order is the only rate limiting step to continuing their care to progressing their care um, is it's a really difficult problem one that takes more time to solve than than most people on the floor of a hospital actually have time to solve and so um, it's an example of a, of the sort of problem that you can point AI to and it kind of makes everyone's everyone's lives a little bit better so. Um, and you see those sorts of problems all over the place. I mean, from everywhere, from you know, case managers. And I've I've talked to some uh, hospital directors where case managers uh, are staffed at a ratio of of one case manager to every you know thirty patients in the hospital. So mm-hmm. how do you figure out which patients most need that case management support? Uh, even even you know, and things as, as simple as just trying to figure out when a patient is likely to go home, um, predicting that predicting that es- estimated date of discharge, um, and identifying something as simple as an estimated discharge as early in a patient's stay as possible is a pretty difficult problem because early in the patient's stay, you might not know that much about that Mm -hmm. patient. Mm -hmm. And so that's another example of a place where at Cuvintas we step in and we can provide you with a recommendation that, that essentially seeks to say based on how you've made these sorts of decisions in the past, here is what we think you would do in this situation. Um, and what's really cool about those sorts of, of problems is we're, we're really perpetuating the team's best thinking. We can look at cases where you set an EDD. We can look across all the cases where your team set an estimated date of discharge for a patient, um, and we can, we can train the model only on the instances where you kind of got it most right when that patient hmm. had, you know, had less excess days and things like that. And we can say, hey, when you're really on your game, these are the sorts of decisions that you tend to make. And by doing that, we can take more off of their plate. We can take entire patients for entire days off of case management and nursing's plate um, to say, we'll help you make some of these decisions today so that you can focus on the complex patients that really, that really need your help and your expertise.
0: Wow, this sounds like a very uh, like ambitious, but also very like, you know, powerful thing that you guys are providing. And I'm curious, like, you know, can you tell us the story behind Qventus and how it got started? And, you know, how, how this model was built.
1: Yeah, so uh, Kuventa started when our founder, uh, Mudit Gard, uh, he he was a consultant, uh, he was a consultant and had a lot of exposure to a lot of the, uh, the inefficiencies of healthcare. Um, and, and I think over time, uh, he realized that there was, there were a lot of inefficiencies that could be addressed and that, uh, and that a lot of the that the the legacy systems, kind of the legacy of the players in the market, aren't weren't necessarily built to solve all of those problems quickly. And so um, what Quventus pretty much started as a as a challenge of you know, what could we possibly, what could we possibly do to help make it more efficient using a kind of core competency of uh, of AI and, and machine learning. And so you know, it started off at a at a couple of hospitals who were early adopters, where we incubated a lot of uh, incubated a lot of things, came up with came up with some ideas, threw out a bunch, you know, and ended up kind of, uh, yeah, ended up kind of uh, forging the product that we have now. Um, obviously, the the our inpatient product is the center of what we do, but we've also been active in the emergency department, um, and now more and more starting to do things in the operating room as well. And so. Um, those it's interesting. it's interesting because we kind of have a philosophy around building things, building things quickly, iterating, um, and and you know trying essentially seeing seeing where problems can really uh, can really be solved. And taking that startup mentality to these problems, I think has been um, something that's it's been refreshing for a lot of our customers in that uh, in that we work with them, we partner with them really, really closely. Um, and we can we can solve some interesting things collaboratively a lot faster than uh, than you know than typically someone can solve on their own um, you know just because of the the types of resources that we bring to bear.
0: Yeah, I was wondering if you could tell us about like uh, you know one of your current projects or as much as you can because um, yeah. I do know that um, you guys have a partnership with M Health right now at the U is that correct? We do. Yeah, M is M Health is
1: one of our is one of our favorite partners to work with. Uh, what is that? Yeah, we. There is a really strong appetite for innovation at mHealth. Health, mm. um, and you know I, it's common amongst it, it's at any given healthcare institution. You can find, uh, you can find a faction of people who are really gung ho about making real change, um, and at M Health, it's really ingrained it's really ingrained into just the way you operate from you know bottom down uh, or bottom up and top down there's a real appetite for finding ways to to improve uh, operationally and so um, one That's of us awesome. one of the yeah it, it's you're really feeling, it's, it, you're making me feel really all cheap.
0: gassed up about my institution you know I'm
1: like, this is great <laughs> rightfully so rightfully so i mean it's it's really it's really incredible to be on the you know I, <clears throat> whatever we all over here at Juventus fancy ourselves as whatever startup-y people um, and yet when we get on the horn with folks from mHealth, we often are, we often feel like we're the ones being pushed to go, you know, to go faster and think bigger um, mm-hmm. just because of of the amazing challenges that get posed to us. And so one example that I'll, one example that I'll give is uh, when COVID hit, when COVID hit earlier this year, um, the big message that we heard, one of the big messages that we heard from, uh, from Fairview, uh, from mHealth was that was that icus were being slammed and there was a real struggle to figure out uh, how to optimally flow patients through the icu and so we started on a project to predict uh to predict which patients were the most uh were the most apt for transfer um and so over the past uh, over the past few months we've been working on developing a a machine learning model which uh which uh, which can identify um, patients who are ready for, who are ready for step down. And uh, we've had a really interesting process of, of uh, evaluating that algorithm and figuring out how it can be deployed uh, in the ICU. And that project is still, um, is still ongoing, but the results have been, uh, have been really encouraging at just figuring out that our model has the ability to, uh, to identify patients for step down at about the same rate as, uh, at about the same rate as a physician um, can wow. identify those patients. And Oh figuring out how, and, and it, we get into the interesting part of that challenge now, where then you say, you know, we, we have the building blocks in place and now you figure out what is the optimal way to deploy them.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's
1: kind of the, you know, this is, it's a, it's a beta product that we've you know been talking about now for a few weeks. And so I can share that it's something that we hope to, it's a product that we're now hoping to, you know to make a core part of our inpatient offering. Um, and deploy to ICUs all over the country who are struggling with this same, the same problem of, of patient throughput, of figuring out how do I free up the right beds at the right time, both, you know, both downstream from the ICU, what are the ICU beds that I'm, you know, what are the ICU patients that I'm going to need to be able to place in my step-down units or my med surge units, and what are and and how does that affect me? How do I empty out the ICU beds that I need to free up in order to prevent ED boarding and PACU holds and these sorts of these things that can have real have real acute impacts on patient mortality and uh, you know and, and hospital economic viability.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, yeah. So it's, I'm curious, it's been like really fascinating
0: with with a model like this. Um you know, if it decides that a patient's ready for discharge, like does a, does the physician have to sign off on it? Um, And if so, you know, what happens if, if he doesn't, or if he or she doesn't think that the patient's ready yet?
1: Yeah. At the end of the day, it's, what's really important for us is that we are a, uh, we're an operations tool, not a clinical support tool. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes that line can be a little bit blurry, but one of the principles that we stick to is that at the end of the day, the care team is, is responsible for the patient's course of care. And so um, anything as any decision as major as uh, whether a patient should be stepped down from the ICU, that's those decisions, at least for the time being are going to flow through uh, are going to flow through the physician where the physician has to sign off. Now, if you kind of if you think a little bit further out, you can see where you can see where where uh, you know a really advanced model might be able to, might be able to make the assertion that a patient can step down and provide enough information to where uh, perhaps someone with a lower license might be able to might be able to make that that same recommendation. I think you know, that's when we think about when we think about the really long term. Those are the sorts of aspirations that we have. Um, you know, the, the sorts of Maybe not aspirations that we have, but the sorts of things that we think about as possibilities for this sort of technology. If ultimately that, you know, if ultimately that, uh, you know, ends up being the right direction to go, and those sorts of those sorts of developments take time. It comes with with careful experimentation with our with our health partners, where we're watching, you know, we're watching both our outcome metrics the things that we want to affect as well as guardrail metrics and the things we want to make sure not to, you know, not to, not to impact negatively, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like reducing patient ICU, uh, ICU stays, um, you know, making ICU stay shorter, isn't that helpful. If you're also increasing the ICU recidivism rate by, you know, by corresponding by a corresponding amount. And so um, that sort of iteration is really important, but going back to your question, uh, going back to your question, yeah, it's it's really important for us that uh, that care teams end up making the decision. And in the event that someone disagrees with the model, I think one of the hardest parts about AI is that people tend to be people tend to be kind of inherently distrustful of uh, di- or distrusting of a machine learning model, especially one that's that's attempting to help you with a decision as as significant. Uh, as whether or not a patient is appropriate for ICU or a lower level of care. I mean, that's a pretty, it's a, it's, you know, by most physicians, it's seen as a pretty significant decision to try to make. And um, in those events, we, we really value that feedback. And it's really, it's really important as someone who builds machine learning models and artificial intelligence technology to, um, to use that feedback as, you know, to, to use that feedback as feedback to the model. Um, that helps us make our models better over time. Looking at instances where a physician chose to either, you know, either rejected the recommendation that we were making or, you know, chose to ignore it or acted against the advice of the model. um, That's perfectly fine. That's perfectly fine. And we use that as, as an indication that, Hey, maybe there's something we're missing. And by looking Mm -hmm. at those, those populations of patients that we're missing, we can often identify things that things that the model isn't picking up, you know, Uh, Mm -hmm. we're, we're, not doing as well on patients who are on BiPAP. And so maybe there's a different way that we can have the model look at, look at BiPAP data and, in, in, you know, where it might be able to, to better identify a trend that's appearing.
0: Yeah. I'm curious if you could uh, tell us a bit more about the model itself, you know, like what kind of inputs are there, you know, like what are the parameters, like how, yeah. Could you kind of like tell us a bit more about it?
1: Yeah, it's cool how most of these, uh, most of these models, I think the best, the best models often start as really human discussions and, you know, conversations about how the best people at making this decision, what information they use in their decision-making. And so when we started with this ICU model, we actually started with a pretty simple heuristic of, you know, what are the things that you watch for that make patients uh, really appropriate for step-down or particularly inappropriate for step-down? And so a simple one kind of the the simple one where we started is there is almost no situation there is no situation where a patient on a mechanical ventilator is going to be stepped down out of the ICU. And so that's a really easy piece of data for us to then feed our model because you can set a feature that says, mm-hmm. you know, if a patient is on a is on a vent, this is a 1, if it, they're not on a vent, it's a 0.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and you know, you can you can start to play around with that. You can feed a model a bunch of different data in a bunch of different forms So maybe it's You know, the duration of time that they've been on a ventilator, maybe it's the number of times they've been on ventilators in previous days or things like that. And those, those little nuances and the sorts of data that you feed a model can have a really big impact in what ultimately comes out. And you can, you can suffer from putting too much of that, too much of that data in where the model is going to end up overfitting. Um, and you can suffer from, you know, having too little or not representing a relationship that might exist between uh, an input feature and, and your outcome. Um, with the ICU model, we ultimately found we ultimately found that there was a wide breadth of data that had some pretty strong predictive power for a patient's ability to, uh, to you know, for a patient's appropriateness to step down out of the ICU. And so we use a lot of different data from uh, patient vitals information, information about what medications they're on, um, information about their stay, information about previous stays. Uh, and, you know, we, so we get pretty granular. We, we, we want to know everything from the model. The model benefits from knowing everything from, you know, how many hours the patient's been in the ICU to, you know, whether they're, whether they're on particular medications. And so um, a, lot of, a lot of data goes,
0: in, uh, goes into the model. So I will concede that I have a very uh, limited understanding of machine learning. You know, my experience goes as far as like taking Andrew Ng's machine learning Coursera. But one of the things that stuck with me was he said that, um, you know, with models, it's the the more predictive power it gets, usually the less explainable it is. You know, he talks about how like some of the most powerful ones are neural network models. But if you were to try and go in and like explain the different features and why it came to the decision it came to, it'd be very esoteric you know like would it make much sense uh i'm curious you know with your guys's model when it comes to a decision is is it very explainable or and i guess also like you know is the structure like what is the structure of your model is it like a neural networks or is it a different kind
1: yeah so uh we use we use multiple different kinds of models um and it 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 really it really does uh, it's not the answer that everyone likes but it kind of depends and so um what we've ultimately found, what we've ultimately found is that you can, you can come by a lot of explainability by, uh, by pairing complex models alongside with less complex models. So um, if you think about a neural network, Andrew, Andrew is, is absolutely right. It's uh, it's kind of, there's a trend of the more complex um, the more complex machine learning approach you get, the more of a black box, it becomes the harder it is for kind of a, uh, for for someone who's less familiar with data science, frankly, for even for people who are familiar with data science, it becomes harder and harder to understand why the model made any particular decision. And so, um, one thing that really helps, one thing that one one way that you can do that is deploy something like a neural network model alongside a simpler model like a random forest or something like that. Um, And essentially, you can rely on the neural network to make the prediction and the random forest to provide some explainability. Now, they won't Mm be immediately connected. One might not have as much to do with the other as if one model was doing both the predicting and the explaining. Um, But a random forest, for example, lends itself much more to explainability than does does a neural network. And so um, you can deploy them side by side. One approach that we've taken at Qventus that we found to kind of play that balance relatively well is what we we, what we call probabilistic inference, where um, we'll have a set of models that that each uh, that each predicts a binary outcome. And so, uh, for example, for length of stay, we're we're making uh, we're predicting a patient's length of stay by uh, by predicting many many kind of by making many many one or zero predictions as to given intervals that a patient's discharge might fall into. And so we have multiple different models that are each saying I think it's this likely that this patient will discharge between these two uh, like in, you know in this certain time frame. And now what we can do is actually run it's, it's somewhat uh, it's, it's somewhat meta or whatever I suppose, but we then run we can run you know uh, machine learning, we can train a model then on those models on
0: those models. <laughs>
1: Yeah, to say here is to essentially assert what what prediction we should ultimately spit out. So like which of, mm. it'll essentially assert which of the models uh, they think is worth surfacing.
0: Ah,
1: um, wow. And that, yeah. And so that can, can get really interesting. It, you know, the model explainability like is something inception. that's, it, yeah, it really is. Model explainability is one that's, that I think folks who build machine learning models and deploy artificial intelligence technologies, it's one that, it's one that we struggle with a little bit because uh, explainability is something that everyone that uh, that everyone asks for, um, but well, no yeah, one so- no one tend like you very very not very often do you tend to have the time to pair through the different predictions that a model is making, mm-hmm. um, and so. And I think frank, quite frankly, it's something that, it's something that healthcare I think struggles with a little bit, or at least with operations, um, yeah. that, that operations struggles with to make all of those decisions really explainable uh, in, a way, in a way that is really, um, I don't know, uh, legible or, or you know, that's, that's yeah. really worth people's time. And so um, a lot of what we do at Qventus is research around how the models perform, um, research about how models perform, how they affect outcomes, and then uh and then you know we'll pair that with with uh, things that make the models more explainable with the hope mm. that ultimately kind of building that trust is a big part of is a big part of kind of you know responsible and uh responsible machine learning development and it's one it's one of those things where uh it, it takes it takes a lot of time and it can be pretty frustrating at times because uh it's a a, a human psychology you know negativity bias you're going to notice. You're going to notice the instances that a model was incorrect uh, far more than you're going to notice all the instances when it was when it was correct. Yeah. And so,
0: yeah. Um,
1: and so that's what we. That's kind of you know. It's one of the things that that anyone building machine learning that actually has to be interpreted and trusted by a person you know struggles with. It's it's a, a you know. But that's the reality. We're ultimately we're trying to make people's lives easier, and they and uh, if someone doesn't trust the model, then we haven't done our job
0: yeah and my guess is like especially with the healthcare profession you know as a medical student everything we learn is all about mechanistic pathways you know like the reason why we prescribe this drug is because it knocks down this or it inhibits this which causes this physiological effect and this is why you get better um which is ironic because i don't know not you know like drugs don't always work exactly uh as intended or according to the proposed mechanism and um but I, I do think like, you know, one exception to that is um, paracetamol, which is like, people don't really know why it works, but people still use it a lot. Mm. Um, and it's just kind of like, oh, we've been using it for so long. It just it works. So maybe, you know, with time, maybe people will come to trust models more. But I, I can totally see, like understand why people would be uncomfortable. You know, it's like, oh, there's this black box telling me that I should do this. Like, why is that? And, you know, and yet, even that. At the same
1: time, we find that there are a lot of problems around the hospital that uh, that people are are very well welcome. That you know, that where people welcome the assistance of of a machine. And I think um, it's really important for us that we explain that these the models that we deploy are they're not there to replace you. They're there to to you know, they're a helper. Mm-hmm. And that's you know, because they can't they can't go and make decisions on their own. At the end of the day, the patient's care is owned by the care team, and what our model really seeks to do is say, if you had time to focus on this decision, here is the decision we think you'd make. Um, And that's really, yeah, and that's really the gist of a lot of the things that Juventus does. And so, for example, you know, the case manager that I I described earlier that has, you know, maybe 12 patients uh, under their care they might not have time to go in and, and establish what they think is a really high-quality estimated date of discharge for a patient who just got admitted, uh, while they're also working on, you know, placing placing two other patients and discharging three more. And the, it's you know it's one of those things where people get get so overburdened so quickly that these other decisions, which have major downstream implications, can kind of fall by the wayside. I mean, we've found that patients who have Patients who have EDDs and dispositions, uh, any EDD and disposition entered into their record of like a, you know where we think they're going to go and when they we think we're going to go, uh, those patients have far far fewer excess days. I mean, it's it's a stark difference um, between yeah, those patients and patients who get uh, EDD, you know, who get a care plan later in their stay.
0: Yeah, I was wondering if you could tell us like how has so is mHealth like currently implementing. <clears throat> your guys' model and you know um if you're allowed to talk about like the the metrics or what's how it's going like could you tell us a bit about how it's going I,
1: I couldn't speak to the latest metrics off the top of my head i don't have the numbers in front of me but we are yeah but we're we're deployed across uh across a number of uh of m health hospitals um including uh including you know the the university of minnesota medical campus um uh, fairview ridges and southdale campuses fairview uh, saint uh saint uh John's, uh, campus. so I think, you know, five or five or six different campuses wow. across the M Health system. Um, it's, you know, one of our bigger partnerships and it's been, it's been, you know, really, really exciting, uh, kind of working with, working with the team there. It's yeah.
0: That's awesome. Do you guys like integrate with Epic or like how, you know, when you like pull data for the model, how do you do that? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, Epic is, Epic is, is incredible in that it's a fantastic system of record for a lot of patient information. And that's kind of where we see, you know, we, we see them as, as that we don't seek to kind of reproduce Epic as a system of record. That's a, it's a fool's errand from an entrepreneurial (laughs) standpoint. Um, But we, we use a lot of data that comes, that comes straight out of Epic. I mean, one of the things that and if if we traded off our uh, our product's ability to make people's lives easier, but it came at a cost of having a having to do a bunch of additional data entry, um, again we'd kind of be shooting ourselves in the foot. Oh yeah. And so yeah, and so we we pull we pull yeah we pull lots and lots of data from Epic whenever we're working with a with a client. Uh, it's it's uh, it's a big you know whether it's Epic or Cerner or, you know whichever. Uh, whichever EHR we're working with it's an effort to see how much quality data can we pull um, can, yeah, how much quality data can we pull from an EHR in uh, you know in the in the pursuit of machine learning models that that you know provide these uh, these efficiencies that we that we try to provide for operations and so yeah so we, we provide that we pull a lot of data out we push some data back in <clears throat> um, yeah we push some data back in things like our EDD recommendations um, are something that we have started to push back into the EHR so that we can say things like, "Hey, you know, this is the this is the date that we think this patient this is a good target date for this patient's discharge." Um, but yeah, it's uh, we integrate with Epic pretty tightly from uh, from a data perspective, and I think in the future, one of the things that one of the things that that I think any company like Qventus has to think about is what what you know your relationship with the EHR uh is going to be. And that's, you know, that's always a it's always a bit of a moving target. And uh there are a lot of there are a lot of interesting things that I think are, are in the works with Juventus along those lines.
0: Did you guys have to like set up a partnership with Epic to integrate with them and you know pull the data and then push things back in? Uh we're
1: the The kind of agreements with Epic can take a can take a few different forms, kind of depending on. <clears throat> sorry, depending on what you're trying to do. For the most part, for uh, for the most part to date, we've been pulling data that uh, that the hospital owns, and so um, we don't necessarily need, uh, need like you know explicit Epic permission. Though <clears throat> those sorts of those sorts of things are uh, I, I can't share too much, but it's those mm. are the sorts mm-hmm. of things that we're thinking about in uh, in kind of potential roadmap items for. For the next kind of
0: year or so, mm. so yeah. if if I was a doc, you know, on the ICU floor, like I'm curious, like how, like, d- do I have to open a Qventus program, and then it kind of, you know, like, how does your actual like boots on the ground deployment, like, what does it look like?
1: <laughs> yeah. So, uh, <coughs> sorry. Um, yeah. So Qventus has we have a number of different uh, a number of different interfaces that we use to help kind of make. Make our information available to people, and we try to to do that as efficiently as possible. And you know, a big part of a big principle of building machine learning products that I've learned is that if uh, you can build the best model in the world, the model can be incredible on paper. But if how if you operationalize it in a way that isn't useful for people, if you you know surface the recommendation in a place where no one's going to see it, uh, then you haven't done anything. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so,
0: and so, so if and, a tree falls in a forest, right? And... Exactly. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And uh, for for a physician in the ICU, it's it's one where it's it's still the ICU specific use case is one that we're still developing. But you could see we could see a number of different ways to make that data uh, those recommendations available to physicians, whether that be you know a big board in the ICU or an email that gets sent to them saying here is a list of patients most you know that we think are the most ready for step down. Um, Those are or maybe it's maybe it's just an indicator that shows up in Epic that's a uh, flag to say, you know, here's the patients that Juventus believes are the most ready for, for transition out of the ICU. Um, those are all kind of options that we take, and we we have we have very little pride in turn when when it comes to wanting people to to solve problems a particular way. I think ultimately mm-hmm. success in this space as a as a as a company for a company like Juventus success comes from finding ways to finding ways to solve problems that people are going to use if people don't use it it doesn't matter if you built a really cool looking product that has a bunch of bells and whistles if no one uses it and so mm. um, yeah and so for us it's about it's more about flexibility than uh, than about finding what we think is the best way um, you know we have a saying around or we have we have a Saying, I don't know if it gets thrown around at but I certainly like to say it a lot. In that, if you've seen one hospital, you've seen one hospital.
0: Mm, Every hospital absolutely. is
1: really unique, yeah, and so yeah, you know, the, yeah, the way that works with nine hospitals might not work with the tenth one, and so uh, you really have to be flexible. Yeah, you, know, you really have to be flexible in order to you know in order to make sure that you're providing the benefits that you're promising. You know, the, the benefits that we promise to our customers that we achieve. You know, we we achieve consistent length of stay and excess days reductions everywhere we deploy our product, and a large part of oh, that's that awesome. comes, a lar- yeah, and it, which is really exciting for us. Um, but a, a large part of that has to do with our ability to to you know provide provide our solutions in in ways that fit hospital workflows.
0: So can you I like I guess are you allowed to disclose like if so if I'm a like a doc at M Health and it's like you know I'm I'm clocking in, um, and I want to like. You know, and you, I want to use your guys's model. Do I have to like open up anything besides Epic? And like, you know, when I'm seeing patients, do I have to be inputting data into like a QVentus program as well? And like, I guess when the, yeah. when the, when the recommendation comes, like, is it just going to like, a, is it going to pop up on my computer screen or do I have to like open up a, or does, is it on an app? You know, I'm curious if you could kind of tell us about the logistics.
1: Yeah, so the the logistics of ICU in particular, it being a sort of newer product for us, mm-hmm. is one that we're still kind of working out. We're still hammering out the finer points. I could give my my thesis for how I think uh, for how I think it'll work, but uh, but at the end of the day, the the real right answer is one that we'll arrive at through probably our partnership with M Health and in, uh, in you know deploying some stuff, iterating. Um, I'll say in terms of principles, any solution that relies on physicians entering in a bunch of data just won't work. Yeah. Not. so you know <laughs> physicians don't have time to do a bunch of new data entry yeah. um there is i can think of no quicker way to get chased out of a room of physicians <laughs> than to ask them to enter more data that's yeah. just you know that's one that just i don't think will fly so oh, probably sure, not yeah. a path that we're gonna try and go down because we'd like to stay in business and deploy products that that's hilarious that work. But, um but uh you know i I say that there is a lot of optionality in terms of when we design a solution like that, we, you know, we tend to use opportunities like the one we have with, uh, with M Health to do research and establish what is the best practice so that we can, so we can make recommendations whenever we go into any new ICU, you know, any ICU that's new to Qventus, and say, here is the research that we have that tells us that this is, the, you know, this is a set of best practices that have worked. Um in other ICUs. And oftentimes what happens is a combination of we kind of meet in the middle. We say like here's here is what we recommend. Here's our best practice. Here are some of the things that are unique to you and how you operate, and let's find a place in the middle. Uh, let's find a place in the middle that works. And so when we think about when we think about how uh, how to make something like ICU work, there's a lot of context behind it. Um, there's a lot of context behind, you know, what, when do you know that you need to find another patient to step down? Is it, we don't always just want to be a cattle prod that's telling physicians, you know, step down more patients, step down more patients. That's not, I think, a way that you, it's that, yeah, not a way that you get people to really appreciate your product. Um, what, I, what I think more about is we want to help save ICU teams from the capacity crises that come in when you realize all of a sudden that you need two more beds because there are two patients who have been sitting in trauma bays in their emergency department for three hours. And there's no sign of an ICU bed that's going to be made available for them. And of course, someone in the ICU will tell you that oftentimes they have patients that are ready to go, but there aren't med surge beds downstream that are open for them to send their ICU patients Mm -hmm. to. And so when when you kind of when we circle you can circle back kind of that that complex mechanism of the hospital and trying to figure out how do you get all of these pieces working together how do you how do you identify the ICU patients that are going to be ready to step down far enough in advance that you can free up med surge beds how do you identify when you're going to have high OR volumes uh, in a in a, on a day you know a, a day or two from now when you are, you know, not going to have ICU throughput, um, and how how do you rectify those those types of situations? And you can think about, I mean, you can think about a situation where we say, you know, you have three surgeries scheduled tomorrow, but you're only going to open up two ICU beds. That third ICU bed you need to open up needs to go to a telemetry bed in a med in a med surge or a step down unit, but you're not discharging enough patients from those beds right now to open up the beds that you need. And so you can see how this kind of traffic jam forms. Yeah, And I think a, a big part of where we see ourselves going at Juventus is trying to figure out how do you string all of those, all of these recommendations that we have together. We, we know who the most dischargeable patients are through the machine learning that we've done. We know who the most, where we're starting now to get more of an idea of who the most step-downable patients from ICU is, from ICU are. And through some of our work in the OR, um, through some of our work in the OR and the ED, we can predict to some degree what the, what the demand is going to be from those sources into your inpatient beds. And so if you combine all of those things together, you can think of how patients are flowing through the hospital, you know, into, into, within, and out of a hospital. And you can provide a set of recommendations to say, here are the beds that you most need to free up right now, the types of beds that you most need to free up right now here are the patients occupying those beds who are the best candidates to to progress to a different level of care.
0: Um, mm. And Kind of reminds you, me of like a, a Jarvis or a, a Hal, you know, from like Iron Man or Space Odyssey. It's, you know, it's
1: when people think of AI, that's often what they think of. And I think the Jarvis in reality, something like Jarvis or, you know, Watson or whatever comes from a bunch of different uh, ends up being, you know, a bunch of different models that have been trained to solve a bunch of different problems. Mm. Um, AI is not that good at creative thinking. In fact, it's terrible at creative problem solving. It can only, it can only solve problems that it's seen someone else solve before. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I, the, the most elegant definition that I heard in a book that I read recently about like what is data science is data science is using data you have to generate data that you don't have. So for example, oh, wow. right? It's kind of profound. I I've, I've thought cool. it kind of profound. Oh, wow. You know, it's like a, a great example of that. So, you know, imagine I'm trying to establish which patients in a, in, uh, a general medicine unit are the most dischargeable patients. You could generate that data yourself if you wanted to by having a team of doctors go through and say, you know, this patient doing chart reviews saying, this patient's ready to go, they're an eight out of 10. This patient's not ready to go, they're a two out of 10. And you could generate that data yourself. But systematically, most hospitals don't have that data. They don't have data as to which patients are the most dischargeable. And so machine learning allows you to do is essentially say, we have data about when patients actually discharged. We also have data about uh, excess days for those patients, about when they might have been medically ready to discharge that we can use after the fact to to establish in which cases did a patient discharge at what we think might be the right time. And how can we, you know, and, and ultimately what machine learning allows you to do is take that outcome data. And all the input data that described that patient you know the medications they were on the orders that were issued for that patient previous day how old they were where the you know those sorts of things and allows you to generate data that you didn't have before about Mm -hmm. how dischargeable those patients are yeah and so in a a real broad stroke it's just machine learning fills in the gaps if you can think of a decision that you want to make of a a decision that you want to be able to make and you say hey at this point in time we just don't have this data um, machine learning is a way to is a way to try and fill in those gaps.
0: When you said like generate the data you didn't have before, is is a, is a like did it just exist but we didn't find it yet, or is it actually like you know maybe this is a lot too of times, deep,
1: but. No, no. A lot of times, it, what's really fascinating is that uh, a lot of times the problem that you're trying to solve with machine learning is one that someone else is already solving in their head.
0: Mm-hmm. So yeah.
1: you know, mm-hmm. for example. Um, Even a patient who doesn't have, if I might not have written down an estimated date of discharge for a patient, if I'm a, a case manager, for example, but in the back of my head, I have an idea of when that patient might be going home. Now, in a in a in a place like a hospital, having that information written down somewhere is really useful because there are a bunch of people who aren't the case manager who are trying to make decisions, wherein that that estimated date of discharge might be really helpful. So for example if you're in a system operations center and you're trying to figure out how many beds were going to be how many beds are going to be available in the hospital 3 days from now or how many patients are going to be discharging 3 days from now you don't have that same that same data that's available to the case manager in the back of their head isn't available that tacit knowledge of when a patient might be going home isn't available in aggregate to someone who's trying to you know work at a system operations center and so uh, making Making that data available, even if it's just putting the same thought that's already in one person's head and putting it down on paper, um, you know, saving them the effort of having to write that down or have a conversation that confirms their thinking, um, is a really useful is a really useful tool for making a hospital more efficient. Now, I think ultimately the big wins come from instances where you can not only not only produce the same thought that's in someone's head, but kind of the best version of that decision yeah. when you can kind of replicate the best version of that decision to say, you know, if you if you had 30 seconds to write this down, you might get it, you, you know, to, to think about this decision, you might get it right 50% of the time. If you had an hour to make this decision, you might get it right 75% of the time. And if you had a full day to make this decision, you might get it right eighty two percent of the time.
0: Mm-hmm. So we
1: want to have a model that takes up zero of your time and gets it right, you know, eighty percent of the time, and that, yeah. that those are the sorts of big wins that we think about.
0: Do you think we're close to that?
1: There are a lot of there are a lot of uh, places where I think you can look at, at what Juventus has done, and certain certain problems lend themselves to that uh, more than others. Um, you know, there are there are a lot of cases where the data to understand a decision isn't 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 even available. But there are a lot of cases where it is where you know you can look at the relationships between a medicate you know medications that a patient had or any of this kind of really well quantified input data that that you know say what you will about about EHRs. One thing they've done really well is allow us to capture a lot of data that describes a patient's mm. course of stay.
0: Yeah, and yeah.
1: Um, there are a lot of places where Qventus has shown the ability to be able to make decisions on par with a team's best decision making. I mean, that ICU study that I mentioned, any physician, when we when we looked at the consensus of physicians, um, the physicians that were evaluating these patients um, only agreed only agreed about 75% of the time as to whether a patient was actually appropriate um, for step down. I say only 75% of the time is amazing. Um, That's the same rate that our model was was matching that same consensus. And so you can think of oh, wow. you can think of the, you know, the model was agreeing with consensus as much as any any physician was, which is a really interesting finding. For
0: it's us. like another doc.
1: It's 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 at least it yeah, it at least, you know, has the same for this one decision, for this one decision in the ICU, it has, it seems to have the same, you know, <clears throat> predictive power as a physician that's spending a fair bit of time doing a chart review. Mm-hmm. And so, and so that's that's a really that's really interesting for us because <clears throat> that's you know that's twenty minutes per patient per day that we can give back to someone else. And frankly, it's time oh, yeah. that it's time that people aren't aren't using now. It's you know right now we're uh, right now teams are so slammed that they're not taking twenty minutes per patient per day to do chart reviews and identify which patients are the most appropriate for step down and um, and just because of that there are patients that end up staying longer than they should. And that's the sort of situation where, you know, when, when I think about the ICU in particular, I think about every instance where a patient stayed for an additional, you know, for additional two or three hours that that's, those are two or three hours when someone else who really needed that bed could have, you know, could have, have had that available to them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
1: Looking at ED, like ED boarding is one of the is one of the largest mortality risks that anyone can experience in the hospital. Like boarding in the ED is a really, really dangerous oh wow, thing. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's, it's oh, that's sad. It's it's unfortunate, but that you know it kind of it kind of makes sense. And so, like the quicker that you can, the more you can make those really high value beds and high value in a number of different you know number of different ways to quantify value. But almost any way you cut it in the hospital, the ICU. Um, is a you know is a really valuable bed in terms of the care that someone can experience and even just in terms of dollars and cents um, and so anything that we can do to help you know free up those beds to provide the sort of decision making that teams wish that they had the time to dedicate um, you know th- those those are instances where we think we can help make hospitals you know more efficient um, you know yeah more efficient than than otherwise you know than otherwise you could be yeah. without the without the help of of some of this AI.
0: Cuventus almost seems to me like a, uh, <laughs> I don't know how your biochemistry is, but it, it reminds me of like an enzyme, you know, and like the hospital is this pathway or, you know, and it's just like this enzyme is just like, just reducing um, how long this, this reaction or this pathway takes. And uh, I think it's pretty I- cool, you know?
1: That, that's a lot of how we think about it. It's not about, it's not about replacing someone, it's about supercharging. It's about giving someone, yeah. we, we think about you know, giving people desi- decision-making superpowers. There are a lot of problems that we're, you know, there's, there's a lot of creative problem solving that AI isn't going to be able to do well. And uh, what we find is that those, those problems that AI is worst at are the problems that tend to be most interesting for, mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. people like you know, physicians. That, those, are the, those are the sorts of the decisions that we want to leave to care teams uh, that we want to that we don't want to touch are the ones that uh, that represent teams operating at the top of their license that represent professionals operating at the top of their license we want to try and relieve we, we think about relieving care teams of a lot of the tedium that they experience now in in you know ultimately contributing data to a to a hospital environment that's trying to run as efficiently as possible and at Juventus we think about well what if you could generate what if you could generate most of, if not all of that data automatically and leave care teams to, you know, bedside work, working with patients, making complex decisions and getting people healthier faster. Um, And when I think about why I do what I do, like those are the sorts of, that's the sort of world that I, you know, get really excited about working towards.
0: That's awesome. I feel like, you know, I can tell you're very passionate about this, um, which is really cool to see. They say
1: enthusiasm is worth about 15 IQ points. I lean on that principle really hard. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's yeah. That's a, that's a, that's, I like that quote. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's cool. You've gone from like putting out fires at PG PG and E to putting out fires in the hospital or helping put out fires. It's, or, it's I guess really, hoping that they don't ever happen. <laughs> hoping
1: that. Yeah. I hopefully preventing them from ever happening, but you know, it, it's yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Cause we we went from you know predicting uh, at PGE I was working on predicting the movement of wildfires across uh, across the systems like looking at a wildfire boundary and predicting where it was going to go and uh, and yeah I you know until talking to you I didn't realize how many parallels there there really existed between the problems that I was solving there and the problems that I'm solving here at Juventus and that's yeah mm. there it's amazing you know even across industries um, uh healthcare is is unique in a lot of ways but it's also not unique in a lot of ways you can, <laughs> yeah uh, and, yeah and so and i think embracing that that kind of embracing that that uh the places where where there are similar problems being solved in a lot of other industries i think opens up healthcare to think about um how are other people in other industries solving the same problem you know industries that don't deal with some of the, some of the bureaucracy and, you know, regulation Mm. um, that can sometimes slow down innovation in healthcare. There are a lot of industries that aren't so, that aren't so regulated that solve problems like this, that have had a lot more reps at it. And so you, you can, you can take a lot of best practices from a lot of different places. And I think that's one of the things that I'm really grateful for, for in, in, my experience, I've had the opportunity to see a lot of different types of, uh, I've had the opportunity to see a lot of, a lot of the same problems solved in a lot of different ways across a lot of different industries. Um, and of course, the times that I've moved from industry to industry, there's a whole new learning curve of, you know, picking up all the acronyms and whatnot, but, uh,
0: but it's oh, you were crushing it. Or, I mean, you were talking about telemetry beds and you know EDD. I was like, wow, this guy, you you sound like you really know it. You know,
1: I've been I've well, I've been at, so I've been at Cubensis now for two and a half years, and I think uh, the learning curve was really steep. But uh, spending spending a lot of time in hospitals is is any any I can recommend to anyone who is trying to transition into building hospital building healthcare tech. You just got to be on the ground. You just got to <laughs> yeah, you got to spend a lot of time talking to people, mm. a lot of people who know a lot more than you do. And uh, yeah, you, you pick it up. I promise though, most of so the, any cool. example that seemed to exhibit uh, an under- a deep understanding of healthcare was just a canned example where I checked with someone who knows, where I asked someone who knows better than I do, like, does this make sense? Is this an example that works that, mm-hmm. that makes me sound like I know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah, it's just about having enough of those in the back of your head to where you can you can toss them out there and make yourself sound kind of smart.
0: Do you think you're going to stay in this space? Like, do you think this is like, your space, you know.
1: You know, it's it's really engaging. It's really engaging. I I had I had a moment. Um, I had a moment at one point where I I realized kind of how valuable mission was. Oh yeah, uh, mission was for me, and and I think that's one thing that I certainly uh, get at Qventus. I'm sure that I could experience that in other industries, and so maybe maybe at some point I'll see you know I'll see myself uh, moving again to a different industry. Um what I can say for now is that health, I find healthcare incredibly engaging. This is it's this in particular is a really fascinating time to try and solve some of these problems because the context is changing really, really quickly. I mm-hmm. mean, hospitals, uh, I, I don't think that a year ago, um, many hospital administrators would, would have, would have guessed that we'd be embracing telehealth in the way that we are right now. Mm-hmm. For example, yeah. Right? Like yeah. that's a huge shift and it changes the, it changes the calculus of, you know, what represents the best, the best, I don't know, operating point for a hospital. And those, those context shifts are tremendous. And they, they can change, they change overnight, the sorts of problems that, uh, the sorts of problems that, you know, that we might want to try to solve and, uh, or the way that we might want to try to solve them. And it's, you know, it's really energizing. It's, it's exhausting sometimes, but it's really energizing because nothing gets old. There, yeah, no, no problem stays no problem uh, no problem stays the same for long enough to uh to ever get older boring.
0: Mm. So yeah, I feel like uh you know we've been talking for quite a while. I don't want to keep you for too long. Um maybe I'll I'll ask you like one of our, our last questions. We're good. Uh, I'm just, I've still, I've still got some time. I've got till, uh, I've got till 11. Okay. Um, which, uh, any, any of these questions you'd want to talk about?
1: You know, I, I was noodling on some of these earlier. The, uh, I think future of AI and medicine, we've touched on it a little bit, mm-hmm. um, but 10 to 20 years, 10 to 20 years is a really interesting time frame because I think I think uh, I I think that healthcare is is really on the cusp of really uh, really widely embracing AI and ML. If not because if not because we want to, then be, the, but you because know we if not to, because to. we want to because we have to. Yeah, I yeah. Think you can look at you can look at some of the inefficiencies that that present themselves in healthcare and you know things like I, I think about. Most hospitals, uh, most hospitals, most hospitals can't make a viable business out of caring only for, uh, for Medicare patients. For example,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that's that's something that I personally, it's unfortunate. It really yeah. is. It really is unfortunate. Um, and now maybe that maybe that's okay to a certain extent. You know, you make up for it with things like uh, you know uh, your operating room and, and things like that um but at the end of the day when i personally think about when i personally think about about you know equity you know equity of healthcare and things like that a system that that's operating as efficiently and you know as yeah as equitably as it could i think about i i want to be able to make a business out of i want to be able to to viably care for for anybody i don't want to have to make trade offs around what people i choose to care for um, in order to create a viable business and i think one of the things that ai helps you do is is operate the you know operate the business side of things as efficiently as possible um to the point where you can you know to the point where you can create a, a viable business and care for people efficiently and mm. it's it's really difficult the problems are i there there are certainly a number of problems that i personally can't think of a way to solve but there are, are enough really really smart people working in working in healthcare and working in, you know, healthcare technology to where I know that, that you know, we'll get it done.
0: Yeah. Like one of my concerns is that it seems like as a general trend, technology always seems to worsen, exacerbate, or, you know, exacerbate, um, stratification and, mm. you know, disparities between the wealthy and the poor or the, you know, the haves and the have-nots. And, uh, I'm, I'm worried that, you know, I feel like there's, with every generation, there's a big new breakthrough and it's like, oh, this is going to help so many of our problems, but then it, it does. But then at the same time, it kind of like makes things much worse, you know? So do, do you, do you think that there's a possibility that AI could, you know, worsen these social disparities?
1: You know, one of the, it's a really good question. And if you're not careful, they could. And I think part of part of what we think about at Cuventus a lot is the the biases that we perpetuate. Um, mm, you know, we oh, all yeah, have yeah. we all have inherent biases that go into our, our decision making. You know whether we're aware of them or not, whether we choose to acknowledge that or not. And so um, you know if if for example there's a, a racial bias factoring into how you determine which patients should go to which post acute dispositions. Um, a model which, a model which trains on, on those decisions is going to perpetuate that same bias. And that's something that we take really seriously. Um, You can't get rid of that overnight. Um, You can't get rid of that overnight, but that's something that you can, you can work at something you can work at. And it's a combination of making it's, it's a combination of making model, making your model aware of that bias, but also making the people aware of that same bias. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You can create a virtuous cycle of, you know, of of removing some bias through modeling and some bias through human decision making, and they can reinforce each other to the point where you can try and create that more equitable system. And the, yeah, it's, it's really hard because when you just look at the numbers, a model which operates differently from people because it is less accurate versus one that operates differently from people because it is less biased, look almost the same on paper. A model which is less accurate can look a lot like a model which is less biased because it's making fewer decisions that you think are correct. Because if you if I am trying to evaluate a model, I am biased. If I compare a model, if I compare a model's predictions to a bunch of predictions that a team has made, that team of people might be biased. And so a decision that doesn't line up with that, with, with uh, the decision that a team made can be, they can, they can, there can be a mismatch there either because the model was wrong or because you were biased and the model wasn't.
0: you're going to have to walk me through that again. I didn't fully get that. So if, so think about it, think about it this way. So you have a patient and you're
1: trying to figure out where to, uh, where to send them, uh, where to discharge them. And let's say there is a, you know, there is, I, I couldn't speak to exactly where this bias goes, but it's something that we've studied, uh, is that there is a relationship between race and the rate of discharge dispositions. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, let's say there's a cer- certain group of people that's getting sent to SNFs more often um all else being equal what's next uh, sorry a skilled nursing facility
0: oh okay okay yeah, post- <laughs> you know Q- the back Q- end better than i do <laughs>
1: <laughs> so let's let's say that there's a group of people who's being sent to skilled nursing facilities at a higher rate than all your other patients all things considered um when when we're evaluating a model. Oftentimes we look at the decisions people have made in the past. So like we'll run a model in, in the background and see how did what, how did the model's predictions compare with what teams actually did? And so, um, a hundred percent accuracy there represents the model making all of the same decisions that a care team made.
0: Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, but if that care team is biased and we've shown Mm. that that bias, that bias just does exist. That's a a fact that bias exists. yeah, Yeah. So if the model makes all of those same decisions, it's just as biased as the care team.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: And so if you, if you modify the model to reduce some of that bias, it'll make fewer decisions that look like the decisions that care teams made. Mm-hmm. And that can be either because it's less accurate or because it's less biased. Oh, either how, way, it
0: looks the same. How and do you even know ground truth in situations like this?
1: It's really tough. It's really tough because there's no perfect way because you can think of this cycle of, okay, well, let's examine the decisions the model made to determine which ones were correct and which ones weren't. But then again, the people who are making those evaluations are again, bias. going to have some degree of bias. Oh and my so that's why I talk yeah. about the virtuous cycle. It's an, iter- if, you, if you iteratively whittle, whittle away at the edges of that bias, you can agree that if you can, if you can kind of, yeah, gradually make both the model and your decision-making better by virtue of being aware of that bias you mm-hmm. can you can start to reduce it uh, you can start to reduce it over time it's it's I, really i'm hard so glad to just that we have a
0: switch. i'm <laughs> so glad that we have someone as optimistic as you working on an, like an important model like this because I, I think this is very important you know bias and race in medicine is huge and yeah you know i'm glad that you're so optimistic about it and are like actively working towards it and you know you talk of this virtuous cycle and uh, thank you Thank you. (laughs)
1: I'm doing the easy part and just like the computer that's telling y'all what to do, you know, it's, it's the folks on the ground that actually have to make the decision and put their licenses behind the decisions that they make. And, you know, that's, that's a real sense of responsibility that we take pretty seriously when we're building technology to, you know, to, to back those people up and uh, yeah. And, and. I, I'm energized by the con- by conversations like these and uh, you know other conversations I've had like them where there's a real appetite to address this bias. There, it's 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 relatively ubiquitous. In this this desire everyone wants to see, you know, this racial bias in medicine, for example, go away. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes a lot of work. Um, it takes a lot of introspection. But I I've talked to a lot of people about it and there's a lot of appetite for it.
0: Yeah, so. that's great. and I, It's so great to hear that AI can help us with this, you yeah. know, because I was always so worried. I was like, you know, like AI is being trained on, like, the, like you said, like there's like previously biased data. It's only going to yeah. further perpetuate this bias, but I guess we as actors and agents, we still have agency and trying to yeah. do something about it.
1: Yeah. And it all starts with just being aware of that bias. The, you mm-hmm. can't just tell a model, go and be less biased. Uh, Cause it doesn't know it just, It just sees
0: input data and output data. So then will you like remove that feature from the model or. So unfortunately it's not that simple. So you can
1: remove race from Mm -hmm. a model. We have, I don't think we have any models that explicitly train on race, but at the same time, if you think about, if you think about all of the decisions that change based on, based on race. So, you know, say, uh, say the presence the presence of painkillers. Um, we certainly train models on whether or not a patient has had painkillers, but, uh, there's also been bias to show that there is racial disparity along the lines yeah, of who gets painkillers at what points. And so, you know, even if you, even if you have, uh, explicitly removed the feature that's, that says, you know, what race the patient is from the data that your model is looking at, you can still pick up on bias by virtue mm. of mm-hmm. looking at who's been on painkillers, for example. Yeah, right? yeah. And, that bias and so that that bias is so ingrained, you'd have to remove all of the data to get rid of all of it. I mean, because
0: it's in part of it's a part of medicine. You know what I mean? It yeah, is.
1: Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so, actually, I think more about looking more at race. You know, we need to look more at the the disparities that that end up, you know, coming along racial lines, so that we can get better at those because mm. there's no way there's no way to just flip a switch and say model i'd like you to not be biased anymore because it just does all it's so deeply ingrained in all of the relationships that a model is training on mm, yeah
0: so difficult problem but it's fascinating That's a lot of food for thought yeah wow yeah so i guess you would you would keep the feature in there but i guess be very conscious of it like you know if you're cognizant in- and <clears throat>
1: Hmm. Yeah. And you, you try to, you try to control for those sorts of things. So like you can, you can attempt to do things like, you know, weight a feature a certain way by introducing, by actually introducing race back into it and saying, you know, this percentage of the time, there's a, you know, this percentage of the time a patient like this maybe should have received painkillers, but didn't because of racial bias. And so you can attempt to kind of, you can attempt to unbiased data. It's really hard.
0: Yeah, really yeah.
1: hard. And so the, the easiest way to come about a less biased model is making, that, making data about that bias available to care teams and having them gradually change the way that they make those decisions. Mm. Um, so ultimately, the more, the, the more a care team makes decisions that have, that have less, you know, for example, racial bias ingrained in them, the less biased the models can end up being by virtue of training based off of those decisions.
0: Oh, that's that virtuous cycle you're talking about. Exactly. Huh? Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Wow, that makes a lot of that. That's that's good to hear, man. <laughs> that's that's good. I, I originally was a little cynical, but now I feel much more optimistic and hopeful.
1: There's a lot of cynicism in AI. A lot of it's well founded. There are a lot of different ways that AI can be used to, you know, to either, uh, you know, consolidate consolidate influence amongst yeah, amongst a, a small faction of people, there are a lot of ways that it can perpetuate bias. Um, but I think like any technology, it's about how you deploy it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, rocket engines can be used to carry warheads or satellites that bring internet to people who don't yeah. have it. And so um, I think uh, unfortunately, there's there are a lot of examples of technology being used for worse before it ends up finding a, a use for better. Um, but you know, yeah the the goal of i think the goal of any responsible uh, you know any any responsible product person or you know entrepreneur building ai build, building ai products it's our responsibility to be aware of some of those tendencies so that we can so that we can try to shy away from them and and it can be tough because sometimes it can be you know sometimes you can be financially incentivized to kind of not pay as much attention uh, to the to the right way to do things mm-hmm. you know for example a model which appears most accurate is one that is most, you know, is maybe is, is more biased um, because people want to trust people, people want to, if you want uh, someone to yeah. trust a model, it's, you know, you people want models, people want computers to make the same, to think the same way that they do so that they can trust them. But at the end of the day, it's about finding that balance. You know, you can't help patients unless people
0: trust your models and yet you also want to work towards less biased models. And so- mm. I, I feel like if you were to tell doctors just that, that message right there. Like, oh, okay. It makes a lot of sense.
1: <laughs> it's, it's, and it's tough because I mean, doctors rightfully so want to see a lot of data around, the, around the decisions that are being made around them because they're so. A lot of them are, are just so high stakes. And so, you know, as as a as a startup, it's it's really about uh, figuring out how to efficiently make those make that that information available to people in a way that they're going to have time to consume in a way that's going to make sense to them. And in a way that's, that's cost efficient for a business to, you know, for, we, we could spend all of our time providing just fields and fields of data that no one would have time to read and no one would be off.
0: No, you know, no one would be left any better for it. Hmm. Um, so it's kind of, yeah. Yeah. I I think that is a perfect note to end on. Uh, I know you got a, you got a meeting in a few minutes. So, uh, I think we'll probably just cut, you know, end it here. But is there anything else you'd like to add? You know, any final words?
1: No, uh, just thank you so much. This was really energizing for me. Um, Same here. Yeah. Yeah, really enjoyed this conversation. It was great.